The Steeple Climber, Part Three, of Careers of Danger and Daring. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirby Bonds. Careers of Danger and Daring by Cleveland Moffat. Part three. The greatest danger to a steeple climber lies in being startled. It appears that professional steeple climbers are quiet mannered men, with a certain gentleness of voice, like deaf people, that impresses one far more than any strident boasting. This habit of silence they form from being silent so much aloft, and when they do speak, it is in a low tone because that is the least startling to a man as he swings over some reeling gulf. Next to an actual disaster, which usually kills outright and painlessly, what a steeple-climber most dreads is being startled. This was explained to me in one of our many talks by Steeple Bob, famous over the land for daring feats, but never reckless ones. How I plainly call up his pale, serious face, and the massive shoulders somewhat bent, and the forearm with muscles to impress a prize-fighter. Pleasant note that Merrill uses excellent English. Did you ever have an impulse to jump off a steeple? I questioned, recalling the sensations of many people in looking down even from a housetop. I've kept pretty free from that, he said. But there's no doubt climbing steeples does tell on a man's nerve. Now there was Dan O'Brien. He had an impulse to jump off a steeple one day, and a strong impulse, too. He went mad on one of the tallest spires in Cincinnati, right at the top of it. Went mad? Yes, sir, raven mad, and I was by him when it happened. I forget whether the church was Baptist or Presbyterian, but I know it stood on 6th Street, near Vine, and there was a big hand on top of the steeple, with the forefinger pointing to heaven. We were putting fresh gilding on this hand. I was working on the thumb side, and O'Brien on the little finger side, both of us standing on tiny stages, about the size of a seat chair, and both of us made fast to the steeple by lifelines under our arms. That's an absolute rule in climbing steeples. Never to do the smallest thing unless you're secured by a lifeline. It was coming on dark, and I was hurrying to get the gold leaf on, because we'd given the hand a fresh coat of sizing that would be dry before morning. We hadn't spoken for some time, when suddenly I heard a laugh from O'Brien's side that sent a shiver down my spine. Did you ever hear a crazy man laugh? Well, if you ever do, you'll remember it. I looked at him and saw by his face that something was wrong. What are you doing? said I. He answered very polite and steady-like, but his tone was queer. I'm trying to figure out how long it would take a man to get down if he went the fastest way. I thought I had better keep him in a good humor, so I said, I'll tell you what, Dan, you brace up and get this gold on, and then we'll race to the ground in our saddles. 
That's a fair idea, he said in a shrill voice. But I've got a better one. We'll race down without any saddles. Yes, sir. Without any lines, without a blamed thing. Don't be a fool, Dan. What you want to do is to get that gold on quick. I tried to speak sharp. No, sir. I'm going to jump, and so are you. I caught his eye just then, and saw it wasn't any time to bother about gold leaf. I reached up and eased the hitch of my line around the hand, so I could swing toward him. I knew if I once got my grip on him, he wouldn't make any more trouble. But I've never had a crazy man to deal with, and didn't realize how tricky and quick they are. While I was working around to his side and thinking he didn't notice it, he was laying for me out of the corner of his eye, and the first thing I knew he had me by the throat, and everything was turning black. I let go of the line and dropped back on my saddleboard helpless, and if I hadn't been for blind luck, I guess the people down below would have got their money's worth in about a minute. But my hand stuck on the toolbox as he pressed me back and I had just strength enough to shut my fingers on the first tool I touched and strike at him with it. The tool happened to be a monkey wrench, and when a man gets a clip on the head with a thing like that, he's pretty apt to keep still for a while. And that's what O'Brien did. He keeled over and lay there, and I did too until my head got steady. Even then I guess we both have fallen if it hadn't been for the lifelines. The rest was simple enough after I got my senses back. Dan was unconscious, and all I had to do was fasten a rope to him and lower away. They took care of him down below until the ambulance came, and he spent that night in a hospital. He spent most of his years since in an asylum, his mind all gone except for a short periods, when he comes to himself again, and then he always starts out to put an end to me. That last impulse to destroy me has never left him. It was after this that I learned about that other danger to steeper climbers, of being startled. Merrill says that men of his craft, whether they realize it or not, work under constant nervous strain. However calm a steeple climber may think himself, his body is always afraid, his muscles are always tense. His clutch on ropes and stones is harder, two or three times harder, than the need is. His knees hug what comes between them so tightly that it hurts, even when they might safely be relaxed. That is the trouble. A steeple climber cannot relax his body or control its instinctive shrinking. It is not looking down into the gulf around him that he minds. A climber who cannot do that with indifference is unfit for the business. What he sees he can cope with, and it is what he cannot see that does the mischief, what he fears vaguely, and a sudden noise, an unexpected movement, may throw him into all but panic. So the veteran climber, swinging at the steeple top opposite his partner, is careful to say in a low tone, I'm going to lower my saddle before he does lower it, or I'm going to strike a match before he strikes it. Sometimes a new helper at the hauling line on the bell deck will shift his place from weariness or thoughtlessness and let the line move up an inch or two, 
which drops the saddle an inch or two far aloft, drops it suddenly, with a jerk. It's a little thing, yet the climber's heart would not pound harder were the whole steeple falling. Merrill told me that one of his greatest frights came from the simple brushing against his legs of a rope pulled without a word by a careless partner. To Merrill's nerves, all a-quiver, this was not a rope, but some nameless catastrophe to overwhelm him. He, he knew only that something had moved, where nothing had any business to move, that something had touched him, where nothing was. A steeple-climber is like a child in the dark, in terror of the unknown. In all the world, perhaps, there is no one so utterly alone as he, swinging hour after hour on his steeple-top. The aeronaut has with him a living, surging creature, his balloon. The diver feels always the teeming life of the water. But this man, lifted into still air, poised on a point where nothing comes or goes, where nothing moves, where nothing makes a sound, he, in very truth, is alone. It's always the little things that frighten you, reflected Merrill, not the big things. I'll give you an instance. When I went up inside St. Paul's steeple the first time, I wanted to inspect the beams and see how the dowel was anchored. I got into a tight place that might well frighten a man. I got squeezed fast between timbers that fill nearly all the slender top space, and couldn't get up or down, just hung there, breathing air full of dust and calling for help. I called three-quarters of an hour before anyone came, and then it was only by accident. But I wasn't frightened. On the other hand, a day or two later, when I was making fast a rope outside, I was just under the ball that holds the weather vane, I got a bad start from nothing at all. I had my arms around the spindle of the steeple, making a hitch, and my head pressed against the copper sheathing, when I heard the most un earthly screech. I guess the shock of that thing did me five hundred dollars worth of harm, shortened my life days enough to earn five hundred dollars in. And what do you think it was? The weather vane had turned a little in that wind and creaked on its bearings. That's all. It doesn't seem as if that ought to scare a man, does it? There was something quite touching, I thought, in the humble frankness of this big-shouldered man. Yes, he had been afraid, he whose business it was to fear nothing, afraid of some squeaking copper, and his face seemed to say that there are things about steeples not so easily explained, things not even to be talked about. And abruptly, as by an effort, he left this part of the subject and told a funny story of his adventures coming home late one night without a key, and getting in by way of the roof and an iron pipe. A simple enough climb, had he not been taken for a pergler by an irate German lodger, who appeared in nightgown and phlegmatic fright, and vowed he would half him a revolver, a self-scooter, in the morning. This effort at diversion turned Merrill into gaiety for a moment, but straightway memory brought back the somber theme. I'll give you another case, he said, 
changing again abruptly, where I wasn't frightened, but should have been. I was out in Chicago, and two of us were staging hung down the front of a clothing factory. We were painting the walls. My partner had made his end of the staging fast, and I had made mine fast. Perhaps if I had been longer in the business, I would have taken more notice how he secured his rope, for it meant safety to me as well as him, and I knew he'd been drinking. But I supposed it was all right. Well, it wasn't all right. His rope held for three or four hours, and then, at just about eleven o'clock, it slipped, and the staging fell from under us. We were six stories up, and right below were the sidewalk flagstones. That's the time I ought to have been frightened, but I only said to myself, Hello, this thing is going down, and caught the window ledge in front of me. Then I hung there, wondering if I could pull myself up, or if anyone would come to help me. I called out, not very loud, and I wasn't excited, and pretty soon I saw I couldn't pull myself up, for I had a poor hold with my fingers, and the ledge was smooth stone. Then I saw they'd have to hurry if they were going to pull me in. Then I didn't care. I... I... You fell? He nodded. What? Six stories down? He nodded again. The thing that saved me was an awning over the sidewalk. Some man across the way saw me hanging from the window, and he ran over quickly and let the awning down. I'd like to shake that man by the hand, but I never knew who he was. When I came to myself, I was at the hospital, done up in plaster, and I stayed there nine months. Badly hurt? I asked, shrinking. Merrill smiled. It didn't do me any particular good. I'm a big, strong fellow now. But I wasn't much after that fall. Both my legs were broken. My arms were broken. My right shoulder and right wrist were dislocated. And let's see. Oh, yes. I had three ribs torn away from the breastbone. And your... My partner? Poor lad. You wouldn't care to hear how they found him. They laid him away kindly the next day. He smiled in a sort of appealing way and then came the worn, wistful look that I had noticed, and his forehead lines deepened. I fancy all men who follow steeple-climbing get those strained, anxious eyes. End of Section 3 Recording by Kirby Bonds